Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. A huge explosion of fire for John Forrest. The car exploded going through the lights and this is as bad a fire as It's a three-guest show this week with Blake Alexander, crew chief Jamie Miller, and winning funny car crew chief Dickie Venables. And it's going to be Tim Wilkerson. Wilkerson goes 391-2. We're talking one of the wildest and wettest Gator Nationals of all time from three different perspectives. Perfect reaction time for Dallas Glenn. Triple zeros across the top of the time slip. And at the finish line, stripe, it's Dallas Glenn. This is the NHRA Insider. It's Cruz Pentagon, 395-8, 324 miles an hour. A margin of victory of 26 ten thousandths of a second. Hey everybody, Brian Loans here again with another episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast after one of the weirdest and wildest and in some ways most awesome Gator Nationals ever held. Certainly one uh, for the books for me. This was my seventh straight Gator Nationals starting back in 2014 when I was an event announcer. I guess it's my eighth straight. Um, It it was insane um, for so many reasons and if you watch the show, you know um, you know that we had these grandiose plans for our Pep Boys Top Fuel All-Star Callout, which we executed some of it. Uh, We got the first round of eliminations done, leaving four cars, and uh, we were unable to complete that. It has since been uh, set to the U.S. Nationals. And you may be thinking, why did that happen? And of course, if you're listening to this, you know damn well why it happened, because it rained and it rained and it rained some more. And it was uh, soul crushing on Wednesday when I got into town. Uh, Thursday, we didn't send a single card. I didn't so much as do a burnout. Friday, didn't send a single card. I didn't so much as do a burnout. And then Saturday, it finally relented midday. And everyone was like, yes, it's finally stopped raining. Uh, we're going to be able to get this show on the road. And then we all looked at the racetrack and went, oh, no. Oh, my God, maybe it's better if it never stopped raining because the racetrack was absolutely decimated. Um, The water, the saturation from the water got underneath the rubber. Uh, The the safety safari actually worked really hard on it on Thursday. They had a window uh, like Thursday night, and they restored the track to some semblance of okay. But really, by the time we got to the drag strip on Friday, the rain had already washed back in again. But... Long story short, um, when the rain stopped on Saturday, it was scraped down and and your kitchen table has a better appearing racing surface than what we were looking at. The Safety Safari removed all the rubber they could, which was effectively all the rubber on the racetrack. They were left with a surface that was really behind what they normally start with on a Tuesday or a Wednesday at a normal event when they start to prepare the track for the weekend. And so over the course of hours, uh, they were able to bring this thing around and they were able to make it raceable. And they were able to provide our heads up or professional level categories with one qualifying session up until Pro Stock Motorcycle when uh, we had an oil down that that killed the right lane and and killed the uh, qualifying session for the night. Uh, the pro modified cars didn't get a single look at the racetrack before elimination round one. Uh, this is their first race of the year. Uh, it was not ideal for anybody, um, but ultimately, as as these experiences so often happen, we start with, and myself included in this whole thing, and my, my attitude is no different than any other human beings on the planet. 
you start with kind of dejection, right? You you have anticipation when you go to the race. You get there and you have this little glimmer of hope that maybe it's not going to be as bad as people say it's going to be, and then it gets worse and worse. And you and you do you slide into this kind of dejected posture. I know I know what happened to me um, when we were you know getting when we got to the racetrack on Saturday and it just looked so bad and bleak and you knew what the surface was going to be or we thought we knew it actually was worse than what we thought it was going to be uh, before the safety safari you know really put the screws to it and got it turned around but you kind of travel this emotional arc uh, in a situation like this and then when you get on the racetrack and you're making progress and it's like you're kind of getting uplifted and then we get to Sunday and you know Sunday was an incredible race day Blake Alexander who we're going to talk to making the final round in Nitro Funny Car of course uh, Matt Hagen uh, beating him in that final round but we're going to get the story behind the story from Blake on that day. Uh, Top Fuel, you have Doug Foley in there. You have Trip Tatum in there. We were guaranteed a first-time winner in Top Fuel uh, for the first time in a long time. Trip Tatum got the job done. Uh, Karen Stouffer just destroying records in Pro Stock Motorcycle. We came into that race, a 672 is the record. She ran 668 jaw-dropping. She comes back out, runs 666, uh, you know, lowering the record by better than half a tenth of a second. In the pro stock car category, uh, we watched great competition there. We watched Dallas Glenn kind of regain his footing. Not to say he ever lost it, but it took him four events to win one last year. And, well, frankly, it only took him three events to win one in his sophomore season in that Rad Torque System sponsored Camaro. And, you know, the record for pro stock was reset. Finally, not the EFI record, but the all-time elapsed time record in pro stock was broken by Erica Enders. Uh, she was racing against Bo Butner. Unfortunately for Erica, she lost on a whole shot, but that does not affect the uh, sanctity, if you will, of the record. So she is the quickest pro stock driver in history at 6.450 seconds. And remember, uh, that's been six years in the making. Uh, the pro the pro stock category made that EFI transition six years ago. Hood scoops were gone. The big dominator carburetors were gone. And on went the fuel injection as well as a very low-hanging air scoop that pulls air in from just a couple inches off the racetrack surface. So the in theory, in normal air, the fuel injected engines, because of the design of the intake manifold and where the air is coming from in the front of the car, don't make as much raw horsepower as their previously carbureted counterparts. But when you put them in 1,000 foot below sea level air, Katie barred the door. They're making equivalent power because that record was um, that record was 645.5, and it has been since uh, reduced to 645.0. Only five thousandths of a second, but a very important five thousandths of a second when we talk about kind of drag racing and, and how precise this stuff is. Pro Modified Class provided great action, 16-car field there. Um Really top to bottom. I mean, we, Pro Stock Motorcycle, we look at Angel and Matt Smith both losing in the first round to the likes of Mark Ingerson and Lance Bonham, uh, two guys that are hardcore, scrappy, do-it-themselves racers and two guys deserving of the round wins that they earned in a first round at the Gator Nationals. It was just another of the 1.7 million plot twists that came up over the course of um, of this particular weekend. Um, and let's go back to the call-out. So the, the call-out scenario, we were supposed to do it on the starting line on Friday. Of course, that was going to be impossible because of the deluge we were having. We moved it inside of the top eliminator club. And if those of you that watched our call-out special that was on Fox on Saturday afternoon, it, you know, it, I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you enjoyed it because it was different. And it, it had to be different. We did not have a racetrack to send cars down. But what we did have was eight personalities and eight people and eight drivers. And so... 
you know, as we were kind of having our our collective conversations at the close of not only the day, but also the close of the weekend in terms of our NHRA and Fox production side, we were talking about how in the initial moment, it feels like a miss. You know, it feels like a miss that you're not sending cars down the racetrack. Not that we didn't want to, but because we couldn't. There wasn't a surface for us to race on. But then you start to think about it a little bit more. And the NHRA, obviously, 1951, it's founded uh, in the early 50s. It's, it begins to have events. 55, it has the first national event. Through all of that time, through literally all of that time, we have never, ever, in the history of this company or sport, had eight of our top drivers, eight of our all-stars, eight of our biggest names placed in front of a national audience on broadcast television and not hidden under their helmets, not hidden inside their funny cars, or not hidden inside their dragsters. They were people, and we promoted those eight people, I think, in a very cool, stylized, modern fashion. I feel as though people that watch that show on Saturday are going to have a better understanding of who those eight people are, perhaps creating a rooting interest for or against some of them. And it is, in some ways, a a watershed moment that we were maybe forced into a little bit. Of course, we wanted to show race cars. That was the intention. That was the design. That was our production plan. But that plan was thrown in the in the weeds because of Mother Nature. And on the positive side, what we got out of it was the ability to show people who is this Steve Torrance guy? Who is this Justin Ashley guy? Mike Salinas, Brittany Forrest, uh, Antron Brown, Doug Coletta, Sean Langdon, and um, and the rest of the crew. It's, it's and Justin Ashley, of course. And so it... It is a valuable proposition that we were able to do that. Uh, obviously, we never want to have another rain day, if you will, on a uh, on a national broadcast like that again. But we rolled with the punches uh, as best we could and did the best job to deliver the best product we could under the circumstances. It was um, it was a fascinating thing to watch the safety safari go to work. I mean, it was it was every man and woman that was able to move and hold a squeegee and and run equipment and scrape. Everybody was out there. It was a collective effort. Um, uh, you know, I'm not going to say heroic because I feel like, you know, heroism is one thing, but to a degree, it was this great collective effort in the, and in the, in the scope of drag racing, it was certainly a heroic effort because people showed up on Saturday to see racing and a lot of them did. And when we ran that first factory stock showdown, uh, class, which was the first thing out on the remediated racetrack and Mark Powick destroyed the record. We saw the quickest qualifying session in the history of that class. Everybody knew things were going to be okay. And, you know, the the fuel crew chiefs and the fuel racers were up there watching Factory Stock Showdown. The stands were packed for Factory Stock Showdown. Of course, that's sponsored by Constant Aviation. And there was a curiosity. I think for some, there was a wanting to be proven right that this track was going to be garbage and it was never going to work. Um, and they were up there for reasons that, uh, that you know, kind of are annoying to me, but um, maybe felt justified to them at the time. And guess what? They were wrong. Uh, that the the class flew, quickest run ever made in the in the history of the category. Uh, everybody's and I say everybody. The, any anybody that had any horsepower that made it down the track was running down in like the seven seventies. Of course, we saw seven sixties falling out of the sky as well, and it validated the work that the safety safari had done. So they ran down the racetrack. We ran some alcohol cars down the racetrack, and then we uh, then we brought in the heavy guns and ran the nitro cars. We're going to talk to a couple of different people here in this episode. Obviously, Blake Alexander, the runner-up driver of the Prano Auto Service head contractor's Ford Mustang. He's going to be our first conversation. Our second conversation is going to be with Jamie Miller, a name that maybe some of you aren't familiar with, and you will be once you're done with this conversation. Jamie is one of the most diversified door slammer crew chiefs on the planet. 
runs a ton of different cars, works with a ton of different owners, and has worked as a crew chief in NHRA Pro Mod, but it's like the only place in the world he hadn't won a race yet. Well, he tuned Chris Thorne to victory at Gainesville, and I want to talk to him about how significant it is for him, why it feels so good, and really some of the differences between small tire radial style racing and big tire quarter mile NHRA racing. And finally, our third conversation will be with the man himself, Dickie Venables. We're going to talk about the big victory that he and the Dodge Power Brokers Direct Connection Tony Stewart Racing Team put together in Funny Car on Sunday. Going to talk about the confrontation with the conditions. Want to talk about kind of some of the inner workings of his crew and and the whole TSR organization. And really just kind of get his perspective on what the Funny Car class looks like. Because from my seat, um, it is shaping up to be a multi-horse race. But right now, it's looking a lot like a three-horse race with Hagen, Caps, and, of course, Robert Height being the three strongest in this early part of the season. Three races into 22, we can't start making any real bold predictions, but we certainly can start to paint a little bit of a, you know, Bob Ross painting over here with the happy little trees and puffy little clouds, um, and we can see, you know, within that painting starting to shape up three big names that have been uh, absolutely throwing down. There is so much to be said about the Gator Nationals. This is this is it'd be about a two week stretch here. We'll do this Gator National show next week. We'll do some more Gators and talk about the upcoming Vegas race. But um, it it was just one that I think I'm still processing. I mean, it's Tuesday and I'm still thinking of things from that weekend that are either surprising or, or making me smile or laugh or want, making me want me to you know throw my head in my hands once or twice. But um, overall, great weekend, and I think it's time for us to uh, to transition into our into our conversations with three very very interesting guest here on this episode. So our first guest in this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast, the runner-up in the Nitro Funny Car category at the 53rd running of the Gator Nationals, Blake Alexander. Blake, how you doing, man? Good, Brian. How are you? Good. You know, I wanted to talk to you today because uh, we were able to tell some of the story on the TV show, but really there's a whole lot of depth to the fact that you guys were even there uh, this weekend at, at the Gator Nationals. So I want to talk first on kind of the logistical end of things. I know you got the, the race trailer. You got it as quickly as they could get it to you, but was still very late in the process. So uh, when did, A, you, you guys figure out you might be able to make Gainesville, and then when did you actually start trying to fill that trailer up? Um. I think we always had an inkling that we would be able to uh, make it there, but also there was some doubt of when we got the trailer and how long it would take to pack it. Cause we actually received the trailer about a week before we needed to leave to drive down there. So the guys got it all loaded up in four to five days and got the race car tied down in there and got every tool and trinket that we thought we needed because of, you know, with the accident, many things that, uh, we're just sitting in the trailer, or, uh, small pieces. They got strewn all across the highway, and we had to kind of go and find what was missing and what was not missing and then go from there. And it was really just an ongoing process up until Q1. And even when we talk about the trailer, uh, you got it there and it was functional, but it really isn't kind of done yet, right? My understanding is the lounge was basically a couple of folding tables and some folding chairs. Yeah, the lounge is like a uh, bare uh <laughs> box and there was a computer that you know jim and dave needed to kind of see the inputs and outputs of the race car and a uh, a fridge for beer and that was about it (laughs) 
And so, you know, the trailer, the logistics of the trailer is one thing. And obviously that that worked out for you guys. But the logistics of the team is another. And, and this is a, this is something that uh, we, you know, we tried to touch on in the show. But really, you can provide a lot more depth on uh, many new members of this team. And when we say new members, I mean, my understanding is some of these guys hadn't actually ever seen or heard a Nitro Funny Car kind of running on its own power up until a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, they saw the car a lot, but it wasn't ever turned on. <laughs> And uh, we started on alcohol, and everyone was clapping and excited, and we were like, oh, no, this is going to be interesting when we turn the pumps on, and this thing ran on uh, some nitromethane. So it was, it was awesome, though, because I, it helps you remember why you started doing this, and it's exciting. And I think as we've had some very experienced crews in the past, you know, it's just uh, business as usual, and these guys were uh, – had some effervescence and some excitement and we were trying to kind of, you know, bring them along. And actually it was just like we dropped a bomb on them basically by going all those rounds and not having any testing runs because of rain really and not having only one qualifying run. There was no, they had never done an under pressure service until Sunday after we uh, succeeded, you know, in the first round. And, and you mentioned the rain, and obviously that was a huge storyline of the weekend, and, and there was availability for testing, I believe, Tuesday and Wednesday before this race, which you guys were trying to take advantage of, but uh, you got, what, one look at the racetrack, maybe? Yeah, we got one look at the racetrack, and it was, you know, the track was fine, but it wasn't sprayed the way it normally was sprayed, and there wasn't the amount of runs made on it that you would normally have made on it before, Um the race just because the NHRA safety safari did a good job bringing it around when the time needed to be, but they can't actually get on the track if it's dumping four inches of rain Yeah, uh, for three or four. It, it rained for like two solid days, I know. And then the days before that, it would rain, you know, a majority of the day. So you mentioned the turnaround and that was something uh, you and I had spent some time together, I think on a very, it was a very rainy Wednesday night as it was then a very rainy Thursday and Friday and, and half a Saturday. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one of the conversations we had was about that turnaround that, you know, if in the event the car is going to go rounds, you know, these guys, as you just said a minute ago, had never been placed in that situation. So how did that go? Were you able to recruit some, some oversight or help from other teams? I mean, talk to me about that. Uh, we really got no help from other teams and didn't really need it because we just, <laughs> Dave Leahy was doing the bottom end with Brock, one of our new guys, and there was a trial by fire for Brock kind of learning on the fly, and he did a great job. And uh, our M- Mitchell, the kid doing the, uh, the cylinder head, he had just graduated uh, from technical school, and he was learning on the fly as well and did a great job. And then Ryan, our uh, clutch assistant, he was doing uh, he was moving constantly and getting us, you know, everywhere we needed to be. And uh, but Johnny Davis and uh, Glenn Kelly and Chris Miller and all the experienced guys on our team just had to do a little bit more. I myself had to do a little bit more. And uh, Jim was helping get tires on the car before the final round, and uh, it just turned into uh, <laughs> every one was actually all hands on deck. And we were giving absolutely everything we had. I said online, like, we gave it all we had. And I think people say that a lot on the internet. And it was like, in the last four months, and leading up to that final round, we actually gave it everything we had uh, for Devin and for all the people, you know, like, we just 
we're happy to be back doing this. And listen, it was emotional. We heard it in your voice and as well as it should have been, you know, it's, um, it's, it's something, it's one thing to get back to the racetrack. It's another thing to do it with a bunch of fresh faces. And then, and then you start to, to see some success. Um, at what point of the day, if ever, were, were you able to set that aside? Cause I think it was maybe after the first round or the second round that, uh, we had talked to you at the top end and, and clearly we could hear it in your voice that, that, that this was something that was not just meaningful to you, but the fact that this was kind of coming together in the way it was, uh, was meaningful to the whole team. Yeah. I mean, all of us had a different way of processing our emotions and that's one thing I've kind of learned with this. Some of these guys, you know, have been doing this for a long time and have you, you run a funny car for as long as Jim and the boys have. Some of them have no feelings left and some of us have one or two <laughs> left that we're holding on to. So we, uh, we really just processed it differently. And all of us, you know, had, like Jim said on the broadcast, it was a long winter and we were pretty down. But uh, the, the hard work that Robert Schwab, Johnny Davis, and uh, all the guys put in, uh, it just drives you to, like, want to do more and be better. And uh, when I can wake up and, you know, have fresh breath in my lungs and I'm, I'm going to keep fighting to do this as long as I can and, I uh, just kind of had that realization that I'm very fortunate to even get to drive one of these things and be involved in the sport, whereas I'd kind of perhaps lost sight of that at times since I'd been doing it for, I think, like 10, 12 years now or something like that professionally. What was the overriding feeling after that final round? Obviously, disappointment you didn't win the race, but when you went back to the pit area and you, and you look at these these fresh-faced new guys, what was the overriding feeling? Was it relief? Was it excitement? Was it stunned? I mean, what was their, what was their takeaway? Uh, they were excited. I think they still are, as they're, they're on the way home, I've been communicating with them. They realized it was a good weekend and they realized, you know, all of us, me as a driver and, uh, all, all of us as a race team, we still have room to grow. And, uh, that's exciting because, uh, lots of people say they want to train people up with good attitudes and, you know, have them come in and, uh, you know, learn the ropes and not necessarily be some, person that knows how every race team's done stuff and it has to be done the way they learn but it's another thing to actually do that and execute it and these kids came in and did what they did and there wasn't one run where we weren't up there in front of the race car that we were racing with a very experienced crews and you know we had i think probably four or five more people working on the car than us so <laughs> you know it was uh it was an all hands on deck effort and uh we had kids from 20 to 70 I guess they weren't kids if they're 70, but, you know, they were all busting their butts, and we we love to go fuel racing, and we were glad to be back doing it. And in terms of the race itself, I think it was very interesting in that, you know, we look at this insane air that, you know, no one's raced in in forever. You know, we start the day like a thousand feet uh, below sea level. And I think even by the time we were done, it was still a couple hundred feet below at the final round, or if, if not maybe a dozen feet over or something like that. Um, were you surprised in terms of what the overall pace of the event was in terms of performance? Because it does seem, you know, I was waiting for, I was waiting for somebody to crack off a really low 80. I was waiting for some really kind of monster things to happen, but it seems like everybody took a pretty measured approach to try to get down the racetrack and, and you guys included. I mean, the car is very consistent. Um, were you surprised we didn't see any of those just total kind of, uh, you know, bomb drop or mic drop runs? Well, you, you have to detune your car so it doesn't turn into a bomb in those conditions. And uh, I, I honestly said this before the weekend going in. Uh, Gainesville is a great racing surface, but there's never really been some landmark run made at it in the past 10 years that I've been going there because the air is so good, but the track 
isn't a St. Louis or a Vegas or a place where you could go out there and just, you know, put six grams on it and hang out and watch the car rip. Um, the, the place is, it's, it's one of the best tracks on tour and, uh, you know, it's probably the second or third biggest race of the season, but, uh, you know, I, I wasn't too shocked by that because it just never really, especially with the track prep situation, the guys can yeah. get that thing as good as possible, but then, and, and then the, the manipulation of the power level, these guys at the last couple of races were able to kind of go out there and rip on the track that. Uh, one that had just been ground and was completely smooth and one that they had tested at and ran on eight times before they got there. And this was kind of just a different situation from a track prep perspective. So it wasn't shocking. Um, and it was nice to make good consistent runs and see Jim be able to adjust to uh, basically what was being thrown at him. And, uh, you know, I hope we can keep that going out in Vegas and all, all the guys will be a little less green. One of the things that was shocking to me in a good way was the crowd. And for, for every reason you'd expect, I mean, you pound these people with rain for days on end. The parking lot is effectively a bayou. We, you know, there's been photos of, of that have come out of guys riding canoes around the parking lot. One guy, you know, completely swamped a pickup truck out there. Um, how was the fan kind of interaction with you? I mean, when, when you got down to the late rounds, was it still jam packed behind the trailer? Yeah. I mean, it was honestly one of the most exciting uh, interesting parts because there is, uh, I don't pay too much attention to social media or try not to. And, but it, you do hear the, the mantra of drag racing is dying from all the keyboard warriors. And if they were there, they would be very shocked because these people did not get the memo and they would be there. <laughs> and, uh, it, it was the cold, it was so cold on Sunday morning and it was so wet the other days, but I, I, I like noticed when there was an oil down in front of me one time, I, I they pushed the car back because otherwise you can't really see the crowd with the body up. And I was like, wow, there are a lot of people here. And you could kind of just get the vibe as the weekend went along that there's nothing going to stop people from going there and seeing drag racing. So it was awesome. It was great. And, you know, as you, as you take this weekend and move forward for you and for your team, was this kind of a best, a best case scenario? You know, if, if you'd come out and, and maybe the guys didn't get a chance to service the car a couple of times, or they didn't get to kind of get this taste of the intensity. Um, do you think that if this places the team uh, maybe ahead of where you would have expected coming out of Gainesville? Yeah, absolutely. You can't, you know, turn on three wind lights and be unhappy. I mean, like losing in a final is kind of deflating because you got to go back and tear the stuff down. And, uh, you know, it just hurts a little bit. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, once you've had some time to allow your body to be a little less tired and sore and you can take a step back and kind of see, you know, you don't really recognize what it looks like until you kind of look at a broadcast or look at social media because you're just so laser focused on doing your job. All, all of us were. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty cool that we, we got to go out there and all the hustle and all the work we put in was kind of rewarded just by some, you know, a nice lap and qualifying and then parlaying it into uh, some decent runs. We were never the quickest car, but I think we were the second or third quickest car every single round. And that's, you know, if you compare that with some decent reaction times and uh, some consistency, it, it changes the whole game. Yeah, and, and let us know kind of what's the plan for your season with the uh, with the Prano Auto Service Center car. What's uh, where's When's the next race you're hitting and kind of what's the what's going to be the pace or the, the schedule for you guys? Yeah, I think we're going to go to all of them up until Denver. We may miss Bristol or something like that. And kind of like what we've done the last couple of years where we were at basically every event but one or two. 
obviously starting a little later this year because we didn't have yeah. a way to get to the racetrack yet. So um, we're just going to keep bringing everyone along, and I'm going to try to keep doing the best I can. And I know all the crew guys, they literally are balls to the wall every day. Just uh, People don't realize to compete against these large teams, uh, I've never really been on one, but I can tell you what it's like to be on a smaller team, and you have to just flat out outwork them. That's all you can do. <laughs> Yeah, and it's a it's a proven formula. It's not the easy way to do anything, but it certainly is a, a proven formula over the history of the sport. But man, it was great to see you this weekend. It certainly was great to see the car performing. Great to see you driving, and uh, you know you go you go back with Hagen a long way. You guys have known each other since you know since you were both basically kids, and and he intimated that uh, in the semifinal round. And I, I think it's a neat. I think it's a neat thing when we have drivers that have that your level of familiarity with Matt, and not many people kind of have that in our sport. Yeah, I mean, I've I've raced against him uh, in pro mod cars when when I was like sixteen, seventeen. He is older, like I think he's like three or four years older than me, and uh, you know, had a well established little door slammer career going on. And I've kind of always been trying to catch up and compete and uh, scratching and clawing. And uh, you know, I'm gonna keep doing that. Blake Alexander, driver of the Prano Auto Service Center Head Contractors Mustang. Thanks for taking the time, and I look forward to seeing you in uh, sunny and much more dry Las Vegas. 10 Sounds good. I'll see you guys out there. Thanks, Blake. So after a great conversation with Blake Alexander, we move on to our second guest in this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast, a guy who told me this week that Gainesville was his kryptonite kryptonite no more jamie miller one of the most diversified tuners in drag racing and a guy who tuned chris thorne to a pro mod victory how you doing man pretty good how you doing brian good it uh one it was great to see you this week second it was great to see you guys pull off the victory your wife was in the house it really kind of came together like a storybook man Uh, i i still i still can't believe it honestly uh you know this after the fact you just you know keep reliving it and and like our conversation you know i've told you i've had it just seems like I can never get it all to come together uh, for NHRA. You know, I've been I've been fortunate enough to win in other in other arenas, and this just was like I told you was my kryptonite, <laughs> and it all it all came together. You know, and it's crazy. Uh, like our text, I said I, I think you and I got to start having a a little sit down talk before every race. <laughs> so I, I want to talk about that because of the fact that you are so diversified. You've you've had success on uh, in, in small tire racing in various classes of small tire racing from Radio Verse the World to X two seventy five. I mean, you've had your hands on on so much different stuff. What is the main difference from a tuning perspective when we talk about a a small tire eighth mile car that is making equivalent horsepower, probably more so than an NHRA legal car versus a big tire quarter mile car kind of from your perspective as a tuner so i think the the real the real um, difference when you come over to nhra is you know they have limitations on on what resources we have available to us um so things that we use for power management say in the small tire stuff we don't we don't have some of those options available because of the the software and firmware that we have to run gotcha. for nhra right so that creates a whole a whole nother dynamic in, in having to to tune these cars right which it makes it much more difficult right yeah you have to rely on uh you know weather stations more to make your predictions based off of you know 
how how the air swings in like a weekend like this. I mean, we saw weather that I don't know that I've ever been <laughs> in any weather like we've seen. Right. So you've got you've got a scenario where you've got unbelievable weather and horsepower and you have a track that's been underwater. Yeah. OK. And and the job that those guys did was just incredible. I mean, to go out on that track. For and, and obviously you know the deal and, and anybody that watched, but you go for, go right into E one you know and I and, and again going back to it you know I, I'm stressing this weekend as normal and I don't even get an opportunity to make a qualified you know me along with everybody there so right. my first round I'm going in is is uh, I believe 13th in points I got a race number uh, you know three and it's like oh, this is gonna be uh, this is gonna be interesting right. And, uh, and you know, the track just, those guys did unbelievable job on getting that track turned around with all the, with all the rain that we got. And so, it was, I mean, it was horrifying looking when they, when they finally got, were able to get out there and scrape it. I mean, I was looking down from the building going, Oh my God. I mean, I honestly it was, it was the ugliest, the ugliest mid event racetrack I've probably ever seen in my life, regardless of sanctioned body or, or style of racing we were looking at. I mean, no question. I mean, I, Thursday uh, I saw it and I mean, it was tore up. There wasn't any rubber on it. I mean, I think they were running the tractor trying to sweep off the water and the rubber was just sticking to the tractor tire. Like it was, it was unbelievable. I'm like, this thing is going to be a mess. Um, you know, so my hat's off to those guys, you know? Um, but so going back to it, obviously, you know, like, uh, when you get conditions like that and, and like I said, the power management stuff, it's just, it's a whole different style of, of, what tools you have available and 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 honestly they've removed some of those tools that typically i would use in eighth mile format so it, it makes it much more challenging you know so you're making massive changes to the car round around as far as weight packages and wheelie bar and tire pressure and things like that um uh you know and, and again like i said watching that weather you know and, and and making what you hope to make the right decisions based off of what that weather station is telling you and how much did the track itself change from round one to the final? Because obviously there was constant traffic going down. It's and how much how much gain did you see in the physical kind of grip available on the racetrack? No question that the uh, the finals was definitely the best it was, but it, there was no point that I was um, you know where I thought we couldn't get down it or or like I said I was extremely surprised of how covered up and how good the track was. I really was, you know. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, like we went up there for that E1 and, and when it went that 568, like I saw the wind light come on and I was more excited about the wind light. And then I realized what it ran. I was like, wow, I can't believe it went that fast. You know what I mean? So I had, I had run and testing some stuff that went like uh, 377 to the eighth. And that's what I was, you know, I was trying to get back to thinking that this thing would probably go as 73 to a 72. Okay. Because again, I don't know what this air is going to give me yeah. exactly right, and this thing rips off a sixty-eight, and I was like, "Wow, I was not expecting that," you know. So it was, uh, it, it it was very interesting, no in, doubt. You in, know, in terms of the centrifugal supercharger package on that car, in you know everybody's in the same boat with the air, but the way these power adders, you know, kind of work and the way that they mechanically process that air is different. So do you think in terms of not necessarily for raw horsepower, but for the job you do as far as tuning the engine, was that centrifugal better suited for the crazy conditions we had or is it more finicky? Um, I honestly think it's a little, a little more finicky. I, I really do. I think that, um, for me, that thing that thing responds to the to the lower DA, and when your correct, correction factor gets uh, 
you know, which I want to say closer to one, but we were like 0.979, I think, or something. You know what I mean? Um, They really do. And and, and on the centrifugal, you have to be careful on the starting line because that thing will get real aggressive. You know what I mean? If if you're working off of, let's just say, for instance, when we were over here testing in Orlando, I think it was a 103 correction factor, right? So, you know, something that you might leave at, let's just say, 5,000 RPM. Well, that thing's a a lot more aggressive in that air at 5,000. So, you know, that's where... And, and with limited runs like we had on Chris's car, you know, we just put it, I, I, literally a week ago, we just put it in all the NHRA format because we had been running that in eighth mile, you know, which a different gear set yes. and different yeah. converter package and all those things. So we got to make about six or eight runs on the package. And, and you know, what little data I had, that's why I was like, okay, let's see what this is. And, and honestly, I believe that everybody was in the same, sure. kind of in the same boat because this air is, like I said, I don't know that we've ever seen anything like that, you know. Yeah. Um, but that's where the, that's where I think the supercharger stuff, uh, gets it, more so than like, let's say a turbo car where okay. don't get me wrong. A turbo car is going to pick up some, but, um, there's things that we do when you're, when you're staging a turbo car with timing to help it make, uh, the same boost, right. When you're, when it's gotcha. popping and banging and doing all that stuff. So it's, a, I feel like just on the starting line, it's a little more controllable as far as consistency. You know what I mean? As far as just when it lets go of the button there. But then I'll take the blower car over the turbo stuff. I love my turbo stuff, but I'm I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of this blower stuff with zoomies. <laughs> oh, I mean it's I mean it's the, the, the loudest damn things at the racetrack. They're they're cool with the flat hood and everything. And you know Chris Thorne is a great driver. I was down at Bradenton a couple of years ago when he when he got the license back when he had the the turbocharged Corvette. They ultimately had the big crash at Indy with. But I was very as, as happy as I was to see you you get the win. I was also very happy for him because the guy the guy could drive the wheels off the car. He um, to a lot of fans, I think he might have come out of nowhere, but having seen him race over the last several seasons, he can definitely he he definitely did not back his way into this one as a driver. No, he does a phenomenal job. I mean, he is in there and he's like very calm, cool, collected. Like he doesn't get himself fired up, you know what I mean? And he goes out there and I mean, he hammers the tree. I mean, he just does a phenomenal job. I mean, he's got us a bunch of round wins by literally just uh you know, reaction time. He, he's, he saved my butt a bunch of times, you know, but he is, and, and, you know, he doesn't get himself in bad situations. He handles the car. He gives me great feedback. Um, certainly we would not have had this success without, you know, and, and that's, you know, I put some posts on social media. It's like, this is such a team effort, you know what I mean? And, and everybody involved with it, with him, Craig Pettis, I mean, who, worked his tail off getting that car round around and and uh carl and you know just everybody putting their hands in and and they just everybody didn't miss a beat you know it just it finally all came together for all of us and and what's so special about it too is we that was all of our collectively that was all our first win in any oh, that's fantastic. which is you know what i mean it's yeah. just it's a really special moment for all of us and it's so cool to have it happen that way and you know i didn't even think about it Brian, it's like that was Chris's hometown. I really didn't even put it in, you know, into perspective at the time, not thinking about it. But you know, basically, uh, you know, his home track. So that was that. It just the whole weekend was unbelievable. I think one of the other things that people don't necessarily realize about the Promod class is that you guys get squeezed really hard on turnarounds, like sometimes just beyond even conception. I mean, I've heard of stories where it's like less than thirty minutes they want you back in the staging lanes. So for you. Is that, I think for some guys, obviously on the mechanical side, that's a nightmare. But for a tuner crew chief, is it actually better to be in a squeeze because it forces you to make decisions and not kind of double, double guess yourself? That is a problem that I have. The more time I have, I think is worse. When I have to make that, you know, that decision in a hurry, 
I feel like I do a better job. Um, when I sit there and dwell on it, I'll, I'll have 10 tune-ups built for this thing. And, you know, and then I got all these options. If I, uh, I seem to, I seem to work better under pressure where I just, I look at the data quickly. I, I, I assess it and I say, okay, these are the changes we're going to make, make them and just, you know, stick with that. When I second guess it, it always goes back to, I've done this a bunch of times. I will go back and make tune-up changes, and I'm like, why did I do that? I should have stuck with the first move I had made. You know what I mean? I, I feel like that was the one I should have stuck with. So, yeah, I, for me personally, I feel like the pressure and making that call quickly based off of what is in front of me um, and not dwelling over it and, and start thinking about all these other things. Just focus on what's in front of you, move forward with it, make a split decision, you know what I mean, on it, and, and let it roll. Yeah. You, you are in a uh, you're in a small and, and elite group. I'm not I'm not saying that's just a stroke of ego. It's the fact. Um, and, you know, another guy that I'd, I'd put in your in your class and category, is Shane Tecklenburg, who you're able to hang out with a little bit this weekend, which is an anomaly, because normally uh, if you guys are in the same place, you're both elbows deep into race cars. But how good was it to catch up with uh, with Tecklenburg, who, again, is just an incredible tuner in his own right? I mean, he is. Shane is a, a is a great guy. I mean, we've become we've become friends uh, working on the Econo team, and you know, Shane uh, Shane and I work really well together. Um, we complement each other. Shane has got he is on a whole different level, like with all the technical stuff and all the fundamentals of fuel injection and all that. And where I'm a little bit more, uh, you know. Uh, chassis related car related what i can't make work with a laptop i try to figure out with the car right and the two of us just work really well together and and it's always good catching up with him because man i you know i'm like a sponge when i'm around that guy trying to pick up anything he's willing to willing to give you know what i mean and and it's just like look we have a great time anytime we're together have a great time of of reminiscing about you know being in bahrain and doing all the racing that we (laughs) did and you know like the three of us sitting there and just you know talking about life and all that no he's uh He's been instrumental with, uh, you know, with teaching me some stuff and helping me with things like, uh, you know, just like himself, like Steve Petty, all these guys. Like, you know, I'm I'm very fortunate um, that I get to go out there and do this stuff and learn from some of these guys. I've 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 been very fortunate, and uh, you know, that's one thing I'll never forget. I, I tell you, I think some people out there. I think we talked about this. You know, they lose sight of how they got there. And yeah. Usually, this 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 world of racing, there's people that help you get there, and and I don't. I don't ever want to lose sight of that. I really don't. You know what I mean? Because I wouldn't be in this position. To be even talking to you if it wasn't for a lot of people out here. Look, it was uh, it was a neat moment to see two things at, at on the starting line after you won. From my perspective, up there in the booth, one one of the first guys that came over and threw his arms around you was Steve Petty. Um, yeah, and just a, a a class act all the way through. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and like I said, he's been a mentor. You know, I, I, he has taught me so much stuff. Um, you know, for the last, I mean, I've been doing this now for, for about 13 years and it was him, it was all him that, that got this rolling for me, really. You know what I mean? He, he was the one that pushed me. I, I started working with him closely on Jason Enos's 10-5 car and he's like, Hey man, you know, we need somebody to come out and help. And I just can't do all these cars. And I really think it'd be a great fit for it. And I was like, how am I ever going to make a living tuning race cars? You know what I mean? <laughs> I got a family at home. I got to support and stuff. And I'm like, but, but listen, if this guy is offering it, I said to my wife, I'm like, I cannot pass this opportunity up. Like I can't, I, I just, I got to try it. I got to see if we can make this work. You know what I mean? And, uh, and him and I are very close. I mean, I talk to Steve every single day and whether it be racing life, like, you know, we're constantly just sharing ideas of, Hey, I was out with this car, you know, and we found this and, 
it's just like it's great to have somebody to bounce ideas off of you know going back and forth sure. so no it, it was cool i mean it, listen i can remember key things that have happened in my racing career right my first second round win was actually against ricky smith at bristol with wow. michael Bealey's car okay Petty, there's a picture of Petty and I that got screenshot is giving a hug to each other. Like those things I will never forget. You know what I mean? And and now this. And, and you know, and and like I said, when I when I say this, like racing against Ricky Smith and these guys, I mean these guys that I've I've looked up to and you know what I mean? I still do. You know what I mean? It's crazy to think that uh, I'm in a position where I'm racing against these guys and I'm I'm actually being competitive against them. <laughs> yeah, and then you know, then the second the second thing that happened moments after uh, Petty let you go is you spun around and I mean, your wife came at you like a spider monkey, man. It was oh, fantastic. It was she jumped. Uh, I mean, was, she, a flying leap into your into your arms. It was really great. Yeah, and and it was oh man, it, it was just so awesome that she came to this race. We had been talking about it and. You know, with the kids back home and stuff, they, they of course, don't want mom leaving. And, you know, but uh, she got to come out here with me and uh, I made it that much. It just made it that much better. You know, she's she's certainly known the struggles and she's my biggest cheerleader. And like, you know, I've I've wanted to throw the towel into this NHRA race. (laughs) You know what I mean? And she's like, you can't let it beat you. You can't let it beat you. You just got to keep going out and trying. You know what I mean? And it's like. Uh, it just, you know, the frustrations when you try so hard at it, you know, and you just can't seem to put it together, but boy, it was well worth it. I got to tell you, Brian, it was well worth it. Well, you are one of the hardest working men in show business making this, uh, making this, this show right now on Tuesday after the race, you're already back at a drag strip testing. Yeah, we, uh, I got, I drove from, uh, Gainesville over to Orlando. We started testing yesterday at uh, 10 AM. We finished up at midnight and I was back at the track at 7 AM this, uh, this morning and. You know, we're running the wheels off of Manny Bajinga's, uh, you know, Pro 275 car and his X275 car getting getting ready for the radio racing coming up and all that. So, yeah, you know, you can't you can't, uh, can't sit still. you got to keep moving forward, right? No rest for the wicked, man. Congratulations, nope, Jamie, no. and uh, we'll, uh, I will see you soon. I'm going to see you down there in South Georgia in a couple of weeks. Awesome. Appreciate it. Well, after a fun conversation with ProMod Crew Chief, uh, winning ProMod Crew Chief Jamie Miller, we now transition to the Nitro Funny Car category, and we're talking about a guy who's in the same job. He is the Crew Chief for the Dodge Power Brokers Direct Connection Charger. Mr. Dickie Venables, how you doing, man? Doing great. How about you, Brian? I'm doing really well, and... Um, you know, as stressful as it is to be a crew chief on a normal weekend, this one, <laughs> this one in Gainesville must have grabbed another gear for you. Oh, it absolutely did. You know, I mean, obviously that's a big part of what we do is adjusting for the weather conditions, and that's just part of what we do, you know. But, uh, well, I tell you, the weather we had down there in Florida was something that I haven't seen in 30-plus in years <laughs> as far as, you know, when you call it good air, obviously that's low temperatures, you know, low elevation, uh, you know, and cool air. And we see that a lot, but not to that extreme. And it was uh, it was certainly a challenge to get the tune-up pulled back enough. So how early on in the week, and, and I don't mean, you know, the raining period sitting there. I mean, how early on, like maybe even before the trucks rolled out, were you looking ahead going, okay, we're going to have to do something significant here? I mean, was it evident even, say, Monday, Tuesday, that Sunday was going to present itself as, as a day that you were going to have to take kind of drastic measures to calm the thing down? Honestly, it was before that. You know, we looked at the weather, and, you know, your first thought is, well, that's Florida. You know, it, give it two or three days, it'll change. You know, we kept watching it for another couple of days, and before we left, we had already uh, – 
had to build our piston racks with short rods, you know, yeah. uh, just, you know, to make sure we had that option. And, uh, by the time we got ready to run, we really needed rods that were 20,000 shorter than what we even had. So, um, <laughs> you know, you, you lower the compression as much as you can be, you know, obviously with, uh, you know, the length of the rod and the piston assembly, and then you put thick head gaskets on it, and then you have to take timing out of it. And, you know, and, and we do all that normally, but it's just such a big swing that we weren't used to it. I think a lot of people struggle with the same thing as far as, you know, cars with superchargers on them and, and nitro. It was a battle. It, it really was. And I think the thing that maybe impressed me the most, and I don't know, I'm not going to say it surprised me, but the fact that we really didn't see the, the monster numbers. We saw a lot of consistent race cars that fell into that, you know, high 80s, low 90 range, but we really didn't see that huge run. And I'm guessing from, from your perspective with one qualifying session, there is no point in trying to make that run uh, if you don't need to, right? That's 100% right, you know, with, with one qualifying run. And, you know, and I just got to say, when, when it finally quit raining and, and we looked at the racetrack, we thought, oh, my God, yeah. you know, NHRA and, and the Safety <laughs> Safari, they did a heck of a job getting that track even raceable. So, yeah, with one qualifying run and, and you know, you're dealing with that kind of air, um, you, you just be careful, you know, and. Uh, if we had had more than one qualifying run and a few more tries at it, I think you would have seen those big numbers as the race went on. But uh, it ended up, you know, there were good side-by-side racing. And, uh, you know, again, the track, you know, we first saw it there on on Friday and early Saturday morning. I think everybody had a question mark, but... Uh, Oh, it was, I mean, it it looked like a horror movie. Yeah, it looked like a horror movie. When they finally got it scraped, and, you know, we've all seen a scraped racetrack, but I don't think I've ever actually looked at a racetrack in that condition mid-event. You know, that was the thing that was really kind of horrifying to see. Yeah, it was, you know, and and we've seen tracks maybe, you know, not to that extent where the concrete was showing, but uh, nothing like that. And just, you know, for them to be able to get it squared away and, and, you know, get the race underway with you know superb job by nhra you know and one of the things i I think is so interesting you know about what we're seeing so far shape up and funny car this year i don't think anybody is surprised per se but it is early on looking like a bit of a three-horse race obviously uh heights car has been very good caps has been very good but you know we got three races and you guys have been in the finals of two of them so it it's a long season but it does seem to be the traditional players uh seem to be right back where they need to be yeah, it seems like it, you know, um, and and it is early on, so you know it's uh, it's going to be very tough all the, all the rest of the year, and you know there, there's going to be some other cars that get it together. You know, we're only three races yeah. in, so just a matter of time where there's going to be some more cars in the hunt, and uh, you know it's just going to make up for some awesome racing. You know, the, the Tony Stewart angle has been made a, just a massive story throughout the, the offseason and, and are certainly early part of this year. And, you know, one of the things I feel like I notice uh, with both you and Matt and really the whole team is there's a there's a great energy coming off of you guys, man. I, like I see Matt, you know, his top in interviews and stuff. The dude is the dude's energy comes right through the screen. You know, it, it, it really does seem like there's something very special kind of forming up there at, at TSR. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. You know, it's just uh it's just refreshing to come to work and uh you know what what 
one thing I enjoyed and one thing I've noticed as I've gone along as far as Tony goes, he likes to come up in the lounge. You know, we were looking at uh, conditions uh, going up for the final round, you know, and he comes in and says, you good? And I said, yeah, I'm good. You know, we had a little bit of rattle early in the run by the Christmas tree and the semis. We're going to try and fix it. He says, well, how are you going to do that? You know, and I showed him the timing curve and he's like, oh, okay, you know, and off he goes. And then we went on. We we're fortunate enough to win. Well, we got back to the trailer after the race i showed him what we did you know it's just fun to be able to show him the changes yeah and him ask the questions and him be interested in that part of it that's one thing i really enjoyed and have been enjoying all year is being able to talk race car with the owner yeah and and listen the, the guy you know the guy had himself a hell of a sunday as well as says you win the nitro funny car category in gainesville and his uh his driver goes out there and wins the the stock car race in phoenix so it's uh, he's living right as well Oh, he, he just, he was having a ball yesterday, you know, um, both 14, number 14 cars won and, uh, he was really enjoying it as he should. When we talk about, you know, a guy like Matt Hagen, who now you have raced with for, for many years, I mean, so many years, and, and you've been around and with a lot of great drivers over the course of your career, including Pat Austin back in the day. Are there any similarities between what Matt does and what Pat Austin does? Because to me, at least from the outside looking in, both of those guys were just, they, you knew what you were going to get every time they went to the starting line. And as far as Hagen goes, that seems to be kind of his M.O., yeah, 100%. Um, you know, both of those guys, Pat and Matt, they're both big, strong guys, you know. and uh, they. But the main thing is they both have the same mentality. They're race car drivers to the core. And, uh, you know, they go up there and they know what they've got to do. Um, you know, you got to leave on time. you got to have that fast reaction. you you got to also be able to handle the race car, you know. Um, yeah, I mean – it just it just takes talent you know driving one of those things is not easy you know it's just uh it takes focus and uh you know the mentality to do that and uh they're very similar in the fact that they're just pure race car drivers yeah they are and uh it's just you know matt i had blake alexander on as the first guest in the show and, and blake and matt go way back to when they were racing you know door slammers against each other when blake was just a, kind of a teenage kid and matt was just a couple of years older and you know one of the things blake said was you know he races the same way now that he did then you know he's not a guy that's uh that's that's gonna throw tricks at you he's not a guy that's gonna try to, to play some chess he's gonna sh- he's just gonna go up there and, and try to kind of beat your head in on the starting line and and it's it's fun to watch yeah, it is. It's always good to see guys like Blake, you know, there in the in the late rounds, you know. And honestly, if, if he would have beat us, I, I would have felt just as good, you know, because what that team went through with their crew member and that, um, you know, I thought, well, maybe it's just destiny that they're going to win, you know, and we're just going to go up here and do our thing. And however it turns out, either way, it's good, you know. But uh, it was good to see Jim head back out there. I, I saw him for the first qualifying run. And uh, said, "Man, it's glad to see see you back. And I know what you went through was tough, and but but good to see you guys back out here. So, and Blake does a heck of a job. He's a good guy, and does a great job driving the race car." So one last question before we let you go is, you know, we talked about how this is really early on in a long season, and in your career, the championships, the teams that you've worked with. What what makes a good team down the stretch? You know, for instance, instead of being a good team for the first five or six races, what makes a good team from, say, race, you know, 15 to race 22? 
Well, that's pretty easy one to answer, Brian. It's it's about the people you have around you. You know, it's about the team, all the crew guys, you know, the assistant crew chief, the car crew chief. Um, the biggest thing, race to race, week to week, is knowing that you have all of the equipment prepared properly and you have all your spare equipment in order uh, where you're able to, to bounce back from from any kind of situation you know we, we didn't have a smooth weekend at all you know we had an ignition failure on the first run it, it ran good but it went 320 miles an hour and you know it's like okay we had a uh, mag quit you know that run first round we just overpowered the track then we go to start the car for the next round it wouldn't start on one mag so we, we had a lot of issues to work through and um you know, honestly, when it doesn't start in the pits, I'll set the gas prime bottle down and I'll go stand in the door of the trailer and, and the guys, you know, let them do their thing. And um, but back to your original question, it's all about the people you have around you. It makes sense. And uh, we, we talk about it often, but the amount of time that those guys spend, you know, packed in vehicles together, driving around the country, and then the fact they have to work in such tight quarters and under such high pressure. Um, if it's if it's not right, it'll go very wrong. But if it is right, you're going to be a championship contender. That's true. You know, it, it, it takes uh, 100 things to, to be right on a run, you know, and it only takes one to screw it up. So <laughs> there's just a, a lot of pressure on those guys and they're the most important piece of the puzzle well dickie congratulations on the gator nationals win uh, i know it was one that matt has long wanted to check off his uh, his list of uh, events to, to click off so we can no longer harass him for never having won the gators so you took that away from <laughs> us but congratulations on the victory thank you brian thanks for having me and so after a great Gator Nationals weekend, a great triplicate of conversations here. One, a runner-up driver, and two crew chiefs, both of them working on very different race cars, but both of them looking to uh, to slay the beast, and they did. It was um, it was a weekend that spanned an emotional spectrum. I'm not sure I've ever experienced at a drag race before in terms of being, you know, really kind of down in the dumps when we washed out the two days and then being... Uh, almost head and hands uh, despondent when we saw what the racetrack ended up looking like when we got going uh, when we the rain finally let up on Saturday and then really feeling um, on top of the world when we showed up to that racetrack on Sunday and watched tens of thousands of uh, of avid NHRA fans file in and did so in adverse conditions look the it doesn't matter what racetrack we would have been at the fact of the matter is when you saturate the ground of any place with better than around a foot of rain when we started wednesday to sunday um it's going to be hardcore but the, the folks at gainesville did an incredible job getting people in doing the best job they could at getting the park they had a, a a fleet of wreckers and tractors that were just circulating around and anybody that got uh, stuck in the mud they would throw a throw a chain on them and give them a give them a tug back to solid ground so overall it was an incredible collective experience the nhra lucas oil drag racing series finished up on monday those racers said that the ones that braved it out and stuck around all weekend, they got a qualifying hit on, on Sunday afternoon, and they went into eliminations on Monday, completing that uh, event there. Uh, notably, Jasmine Salinas won her first national event in Top Alcohol Dragster in the, sla- in the Scrapper's Car. Uh, just an absolutely awesome achievement there. And um, a, a Gator Nationals that those in attendance who have been coming for many years will talk about for many years, a Gator Nationals that those who raced at 
will certainly talk about for years. They will tell the war stories of the rain, and they will tell the hero stories of success on the racetrack. We will be going to Las Vegas in a couple of weeks for the four wide nationals in Las Vegas, and it's going to be awesome as it always is. It'll be a packed house. Uh, nature, at least uh, the, the climate of the local area, says that it should be drier out there, which would be impossible to get any more wet. I know I'm looking forward to it, and I know all of you are as well. We'll be back next week with another episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. We'll talk a little bit more about Gainesville, and then we'll certainly start to look forward to this four-wide race coming up in Vegas, which is a very party-like atmosphere. If you've never been to Vegas for the spring race, it is, to me, there's kind of a duality of the two races in Vegas, as there should be. The spring race being a four-wide, of course, a different format. It has a much lighter feel to it. Uh, it has a much more party atmosphere to a degree, in my opinion, than the fall race does for the simple fact is that the fall race typically leads us into the finals in Pomona. And so, or in, in the case of 2020, it was the finals. Um, and, and so the attitude there, I think, is a little bit more intense, a little bit more locked down. So I'm looking forward to getting out to Vegas because it's Vegas, baby. What? Why would you not want to be there? But I also love the environment of this four-wide race. If you've never seen four-wide drag racing, give it a look. If you're a person on the internet that writes mean things about four-wide drag racing, I challenge you to come out and check it out at least once. And then you can go home and say your mean stuff if you want. But the overload of the sensory overload of a four-wide competition is beyond compare in motorsports. It is bone jarring. It is filling, rattling. It is gut shaking. And it is a whole lot of fun. So we'll be out there in Vegas shortly. But before that, we'll be back with the NHRA Insider Podcast next week. You can get your tickets to Vegas on NHRA.com. I'll be there. You should be there, too. And I'll be right back here in your ear holes one week from now on the NHRA Insider Podcast. I'm Brian Loans. Thanks for listening.